Soundprints Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Soundprints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushable. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Soundprints for the week of March 14, 2021. Here are some of the events that are happening on the KCB Zoom line this week. Dial 669-900-6833 and enter the code 862-9889-6972 from any landline or cell phone. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision invites everyone to its next informational call on Wednesday, March 17. Here's your chance to ask questions, share information and tips, and much more. The topic that evening will also be a discussion about glaucoma. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites you to our roundabout this coming Friday, March 19, from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Watch for more information on the subject for the meeting on the KCB email list. GLCB will also hold a roundabout on Friday, March 26. That's the fourth Friday of the month, so it will be time for Page Turners, sponsored by the Tri-State Library users. Tell us about books you've read. Participate in the conversation. Perfect for everyone who enjoys reading. For more information about Roundabout and the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind, call us at 502-895-4598. The Tri-State Library users will hold its next meeting on Saturday, March 20 at 11 a.m. You're invited to join the call and help us plan future programs and activities and learn more about our new book club. The monthly meeting of the Guide Dog Users of Kentuckyana is scheduled for Monday, March 22 at 7 p.m. Note. You don't have to have a guide dog to participate. Everyone is welcome. Come and get involved. For more information about guide dogs or GDUKI, call Deb Lewis, President at 502-721-9129. And two more events of interest are ACB Families. They will host a program on Sunday, March 21 at 9 p.m. on the Community Calls. And the Library Users of America invite you to participate in their March Library Without Walls call all about Western books on Wednesday, March 17 at 8.30 p.m. Watch the KCB list for announcements. Our guest this week on page two is Clark Rackville, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. ACB just completed its legislative seminar and visits to Capitol Hill about two weeks ago, and already Clark has a success story to share with us concerning transportation. Clark shares a step forward in this work on page two. There are three informational items on page three. First, the ACB office prepared a list of important points in the new stimulus package that impact families, businesses, and services, and thus people with disabilities. Second, IRA just announced a new COVID-19 promotion that will make free minutes available for vaccine-related needs. And finally, Prevent Blindness invited organizations and agencies to sign on to a letter to Congress asking for funding for eye research and other issues through the CDC. We present that letter and the 116 organizations that signed on to the letter on page 3. Check for your favorite organization on the list. We hope you enjoy this week's sound prints. Thanks for listening. Page 2. With me is Clark Rackville. 
He is the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs with the American Council of the Blind. He's based in Alexandria, Virginia, and he just recently did an absolutely outstanding job coordinating and creating the legislative seminar that the American Council of the Blind held at the end of February. Many of you participated in that seminar for the first time because this year it was virtual on Zoom and on ACB radio. In the past, it's been in person in Washington, D.C. Only a handful of people could participate, especially from KCB. We've not been able to send as many people as we would like just because of the expense in the past. This year, instead of having three or four people who could go to the seminar, we had 30 people that registered for the leadership and legislative seminar. And many of these people participated in this meetings with our legislators and uh, were able to actually talk with some of the congressmen and senators from Kentucky. It was a great experience. But Clark is with us today to talk about one of the imperatives that we were discussing at the seminar having to do with transportation. And he has a really wonderful announcement about some progress on that imperative that was just announced just within the last 24 hours. So Clark, welcome to Sound Friends. We're so glad to have you and tell us about what's been happening in the area of the transportation imperative. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Carla, and thank you for having me on Sound Prince again. As Carla said, my name is Clark Rockfall. I'm the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. And thank you to everyone who was flexible and innovated with ACB to take part in this year's leadership conference and legislative seminar. Jeez, uh, the KCB set a, a great example, along with many of our other affiliates, of how we could embrace change and make the most out of this year's virtual event. I have a big smile on my face right now hearing that there were 30 participants from KCV in the legislative seminar participating in our breakout tracks on health and wellness, digital inclusion, our um, live, learn, and earn with vision loss, our general sessions on voting, as well as our transportation breakout track. Some of the programming in transportation, we had uh, a panel of four airlines, another panel led by ACB's own Ron Brooks, uh, dealing with manufacturers for autonomous vehicles. And as Carla said, one of our legislative imperatives this year is dealing with transportation, and that is reforms to paratransit, having the access board finish the guidelines for pedestrian right-of-way accessibility, providing additional grant funding to improve the public and paratransit programs, as well as improve the reporting and complaint process. So when people with disabilities, whether it's ACB members, people experiencing vision loss, or the broader disability community uh, can easily bring those issues and problems to the attention of the government and the regulators who can in enforce change in those areas. So during this year's legislative seminar at the end of 
February. Um, we did not have a bill number yet for the 117th Congress. Our affiliates and ACB members were sharing their personal stories on what accessible transportation means to them, the access barriers they face on a daily and weekly basis when trying to navigate independently. And we were really asking for the reintroduction of the Disability Access to Transportation Act. This was a bill that was introduced in a, on a bipartisan basis in 2020. The policy staff from the American Council of the Blind, American Foundation for the Blind, and others been advocating for many years to improve transportation access. Um, and this advocacy, these advocacy efforts led to the Disability Access to Trans Transportation Act. And the exciting news that Carla referenced is this bill, as we call it, the Data Act, has now been reintroduced in the House of Representatives for the 117th Congress. And that bill number is H.R. 1697. And I know that our, our affiliates and members have already sent thank yous and have been following up with the staff and members with whom they met during the Legislative Seminar and Leadership Conference. Then this provides another great opportunity to build that connection, reach back out to them, and bring to their attention, hey, FYI, the Data Act has been reintroduced. Would really love to have you co-sponsor this great piece of legislation. So the more co-sponsors we get, the more we can raise the profile of this legislation, the more likely it is to be included um, in the surface transportation reauthorization, and which will probably be part of a large infrastructure package later this year. Clark, that is absolutely fantastic news. I'm really interested in your comment about our getting back to our staffers that we met with and talking to them about co-sponsoring the legislation. There's so many pieces of, of legislation that are introduced every year that it's easy for the things that are important to us to get lost in the shuffle. Can you talk a little bit about how, just because a bill is introduced, doesn't mean that it might tell us a little about that process? Sure, that's a great point, Carla. This is certainly an exciting step, but there are still plenty of things that need to happen for a, you know, a bill to become a law, right? So having members of Congress sponsor legislation and work with the disability community to put those ideas um, down on paper and convert that into the text of legislation um, is, is phenomenal. But now it's really up to us as the impacted community um, to really work with all of our individual members of Congress um, to kind of, you know, preach the good news about this legislation, uh, because like you said, there are, there are thousands of bills introduced every year, and on average, it takes around eight years for a bill to become a law. Well, we don't want to wait that long, and we have a great opportunity for this bill to move quickly. Um, that's not always the case, but because the Surface Transportation uh, Act 
must be reauthorized. It was supposed to be reauthorized last year, uh, but Congress in a spending deal um, extended the programs under the Surface Transportation Act or the FAST Act for an additional year. So that deadline is coming up at the end of September. Uh, so what we are working to do is to encourage our members of Congress to support this legislation and to support its inclusion in that broader transportation package. And one of the ways, or the, I should say the most impactful way that we can do this is by continuing the great work that we've been doing, the great work that all of our affiliates and members have been doing since the legislative seminar, and really sharing those personal stories with our members so they understand why this is important and why this is important to their constituents. Um, one thing that stands out to me about this bill is the paratransit pilot program um, that would allow paratransit programs to offer a one stop of about 10 minutes whether that's to the pharmacy, to childcare, to an ATM or financial center, so that folks, uh, because paratransit does not require rides to be scheduled within 90 minutes of one another, now if you're picking up a prescription, that could be 10 minutes, and now you have to wait 90 minutes until your next paratransit ride. So sharing stories like that of how impactful that would be to independence, to being able to drop kids off at school and go to work, or come home from a doctor's office, you know, maybe you're getting a, a vaccine or um, going to the doctor for some other reason. But now you can just do a, a 10 minute stop at the pharmacy and then be on your way back home. Uh, something like that could be a game changer for a lot of people. And it's those stories, sharing those stories are really what's gonna help us raise the profile of this bill and help us get it over the finish line. Mark, as you were talking, I was thinking about another point that might be made with that legislation in allowing that one stop is that uh, for each paratransit ride, uh, there is a cost, a considerable cost, each one-way ride to the, um, to the government. They pay X dollars for, for a ride. I don't know what it is now, but it, it used to be something like $25, $30 per ride that they would pay to the provider. Well, if they're going to be making a stop and allowing that person to make a quick stop and then, you know, complete that ride, uh, they might give some incentive to the, to the provider to do that, but it would seem that it would be less costly to provide the stop and then continue and finish the ride than it would be to have to, to get another ride later on to, um, to take that person on home or to who, wherever their destination is. So that, that would seem to be one point. And another uh, is just that the time it takes to try to coordinate arriving somewhere and then the windows that are involved and um, 
in order to make sure you've allowed enough window for the first ride to be late and the next ride to be early. I mean, there's so many factors that could be smoothed out with just allowing that one stop that it's really, it's really incredible when you think about it, um, how much more efficient the system could be. Carla, I agree with you. I certainly Clark's speculation is that allowing that allowing that one stop in the long run or on average would save time and would save money. Um, but this is one of the reasons we do pilot programs is so that we can gather data and research. Correct. So by conducting these uh, pilots, I believe it's up to 15 pilot programs in different cities, urban slash rural um, it would really allow us to gather that data and come, you know, reach those conclusions on how effective this is. But mm -hmm. in, in my mind, it's really the, you know, the reimagining of what paratransit is, right? If paratransit is meant to only take, a, you know, a sick or infirmed people, that society has deemed really can't contribute from point A to point B, then our current system, you know, is fine, right? But if paratransit is supposed to uh, improve the lives, Im improve the community engagement and the independence so that people with disabilities can be self-sufficient, um, so that we can have economic opportunities, so we can improve our quality of life, then I think the paratransit program needs to evolve because the certainly our own expectations for uh, ACB members and the broader disability community of what we can do, who we are, and what we're capable of has certainly evolved. Right, right. Well, it's going to be a very interesting, uh, interesting time here to, to, um, and, a, and a great opportunity for us to advocate for improved transportation, um, and and that's just one aspect of this legislation. I hope that at some point, and it may not be now, but it would be really, really good if the paratransit opportunities could be also expanded past what the ADA limits are mm -hmm. um, and and hopefully someday that will happen because there are so many people that have no access to to transportation be they outside the ADA limits in a metropolitan area or people who live in rural areas a lot of Kentucky for example is very very rural and there's there's nothing yeah um, yeah, it's really difficult. But, you know, yeah. you take the steps you can take and then when when you um when you get the you get one goal completed, you begin on the next. It's advocacy right. is never done. Never That's done. right. It's a journey. It is a journey yes, it is. and and this bill, you know, as you're you're pointing out, it's it is no silver bullet to our transportation woes, right? But it is a a positive step forward. Um, it will help improve the, the data we can gather as well as the access for uh, those who the pilot programs will provide uh, expanded 
use and flexibility. But there are some additional parts of this bill um, that will have broader impact. So there's Section 5310 grants, and those grants go to supporting uh, transportation service and facilities um, for people with disabilities, older Americans, uh, minority communities, as well as rural communities. So providing additional funding for those grants will, uh, you know, in the future, improve the capabilities, whether that's by getting, uh, you know, new vehicles, new shuttles. But it could also, because the local transportation providers are not then having to spend money, you know, their own money on those vehicles, that it can expand more opportunities for people to have access to those services. So we're really excited about that expansion of funding for the 5310 grants as well. Okay. Well, that's just, that, that's all good news, all positive news. And I'm sure that, um, as, as we move along and hopefully get this included into this um, Surface Transportation Act later in the year, huge bill that, um, that, we, that we are hopeful will be included there. Uh, when that is done, that there will be more transportation things because <laughs> transportation is one of the major barriers to our participation in so many different areas in society. And one other, one other thing, this bill, the Data Act, is, is not, I'm sure, the only piece of legislation that's been introduced where somebody out there is hoping that their part, their little piece of all of this will get included in this large bill. I would wager that there's probably hundreds of, of groups out there that are wanting their particular little corner of transportation included in this act. Um, and that can be everything from organizations to different governmental entities. It's so important that we continue to keep our issues in front of the people that will be deciding what gets into that major legislation. Carla, this is really the fun part of advocacy. You know, we, we have <laughs> a, a positive bill that will improve the lives of our members and the disability community on, mm -hmm. on this transportation priority. And we now have a, a bill number. So we get to go, again, like spread the good news about this legislation, ensure that our members of Congress know about H.R. 1697, uh, encourage them to co-sponsor the bill. It's another opportunity to reconnect with staff and our members of Congress and asking them to co-sponsor and support H.R. 1697. Uh, it's another opportunity to build those relationships and become a trusted ally and resource for staff and members of Congress. And like you were saying, we not only do we do we want to do this, is it fun? Not only is it fun to do this, but we also need to do this because there are a lot of competing priorities that are going to uh, get shoehorned into a trillion dollar transportation bill, um, whether it's Amtrak funding, uh, stuff for the airlines and airports, 
roads, bridges, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, right? But we need to make mm-hmm. sure that uh, the disability community is being thought of and is being heard and included in these conversations. And working to grow support for the DATA Act is a great way that we can do that here in 2021. So, Clark, we've talked at the beginning about the people who participated in the legislative seminar, but everybody can assist with this. It's not just those who Mm -hmm. participated in the legislative seminar. It's not just those people who were in the meetings with the staffers or the uh, representatives or the senators about this, but it's everybody. And so the person out there who maybe has never been involved in advocacy, who has never talked to a staffer or a congressman's office or whatever, tell, tell us how they can very, very easily get involved in all of this push to, to get better transportation for, for all of us. Thank you, Carla. Yes, it is very simple and easy to do. So if you are a computer user, in general, your member of Congress if you know who that is, their website is their last name dot house dot gov, or for the senator, their last name dot senate dot gov. Otherwise, you can go to house dot gov or senate dot gov and look up your member of Congress or your senators on their either you know, on the the House or Senate's websites or the website of your individual member of Congress, there will be contact information. You can either send them, send them an email, fill out a form on their website, or usually at the bottom or under about them or contact them. You can find the phone numbers for their in-state offices as well as their Washington, D.C. office. Um, another way to give them a call is by dialing the Capitol switchboard, which is 202 202- Two two four three one two one, and whenever writing or speaking with your member's office, uh, a remember that they are only people. Uh, you know they're not the, the almighty and powerful Oz. They are ordinary people who <laughs> want to serve their community. So. Uh, sometimes it can be intimidating, but uh, you just want to have a friendly conversation with them and, you know, introduce yourself like you would on any other phone call or any other email. So, for example, if I was writing my congressman, uh, Congressman Don Beyer for Virginia, I might begin an email with, good morning, my name is Clark Rockfall. I'm a member of the American Council of the Blind, uh, and I'm a resident of, you know, Alexandria, Virginia, uh, 22305. So they know that I'm a constituent, right? And then after that brief introduction, you know, let them know why you're reaching out. I'm reaching out because transportation is very important to the disability community. Um, there are numerous transportation barriers that we encounter on a, you know, a daily basis in the state of Virginia and our local community. I would really encourage you to support H.R. 1697, which will improve access to transportation for people with disabilities 
please let me know if you have any questions, and I look forward to hearing from you soon. You know, and you can provide your email address or your phone number. Um, but that's not all, right? Like, in, like Carla was saying, there are thousands of bills that are introduced. There are thousands of emails and phone calls that they receive on a weekly and daily basis. So if you don't speak with them on the phone and you leave a voicemail or and you don't hear back, or if you send them an email and you don't hear back, you can always wait a week or two and then reach out again. And if enough people are persistent in their advocacy, uh, I guarantee you'll get a response. And the response initially could be, thank you for bringing this attention. We'll look into it further. Well, now that they've responded, they're looking into it. I'd say, wait, give them a week or so. And now you have a reason to reach back out to them again. Hey, thank you for looking into this matter. I just wanted to follow up and see if you had any questions and, uh, uh, you know, would be excited to hear that you're going to support HR 1697. Um, and just keep, keep bringing it up, keep laying that, uh, co-sponsoring the bill right in their lap, uh, so that they know that it is an important matter for their constituents. I think it's also important for us to be aware of some, I, I guess, a, a appropriate protocols, um, I've seen some letters that are uh, where the person maybe addresses the congressman by their first name or, you know, uh, Mr. So-and-so or whatever. And I I always think it's appropriate to be sure that we, you know, address uh, congressman so-and-so or senator um, Mm -hmm. whomever. Uh, These aren't our next – I mean, they may be our next-door neighbor – but these are people that, you know, you wouldn't go up to Joe Biden and say, hi, Joe, how are you? You know, <laughs> I think he would like that. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. you know, it, there, there is an appropriate way to to address people um, that do have their I think their titles should be used um, at least when you are initiating a conversation, if you get to know the staffer, you're still, Mm -hmm. you're still going to be respectful. I guess respect is the word I'm looking for. Um, Yes. Yes. We need to show respect. Yes. That's, that's right. That's right. And and it's always, I'd say it's always better to be overly formal than, uh, than not. So I agree with you, Carla, you can, uh, in written communications, especially if you are sending a, a snail mail letter or you're drafting a formal, formal letter, you can always refer to your representatives or senators as the honorable and then their mm-hmm. first and last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can refer to your uh, representatives as you know, congressman, congresswoman, or representative, and then their first mm-hmm. and last name. And for the the senators, senator first and last name, is a is a great way to go about it. You know, I discovered also one interesting little thing that um, I didn't know. I, I sort of half knew. You know, there's things that you kind of halfway know, and so you think you are really informed, and then you find out there's more to know on that particular area. Um, when I was making appointments a few years ago. For Hill visits, um, I 
discovered that the Capital Switchboard number had a an automated system where you would call in and uh, it would ask, you know, you, it would it would prompt you to find, walk you through the prompts of finding the office you were looking for. It asked if you wanted the Senate or the House. It would ask, you could even enter the zip code and it would help you find the congressman or the senator that you were looking for. Well, I hadn't done that for uh, for a while. And so thinking I was going to get the automated system, I called. Oh, I got this idea in the middle of the night. Oh, I'm going to call and see um, who who uh, represents certain zip, zip codes in Kentucky. Because I want to be sure we match people up correctly. So it was like 2 in the morning, Clark. <laughs> and I called the Capitol switchboard number, and I got a person. And I thought, oh, gee, it's it's the middle of the night. So, um, I, I, well, I already had this person. So I, I said, uh, told her what I was looking for. And she said, oh, I can look that up. And so we looked up a couple of districts. And um, and then she said, oh, this, this zip code is split between these two congressmen. And uh, and I said, okay, well, how how am I going to find out who's in you know, where a specific address is. And she said, oh, just give it to me and I'll look it up. And that was the easiest thing. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry for disturbing you. She says, oh, no, no, I'm glad you called. We don't get too many calls in the middle of the night. But I didn't realize there was a person on duty 24 hours a day at the Capitol switchboard. That may not always be the case from administration to administration or year to year, but it certainly is the case right now. And it was extremely useful in in determining who we wanted to have in those meetings with each of the district offices. So, um, you know, it might be a way if a person out there listening, if you don't know who your congressman is, then you can telephone the Capitol switchboard. Uh, what was that, Clark? 202-224-3121. And, uh, yeah, and ask. And they can help you find the right office to talk to. So um, it's not like it used to be where you had to almost kind of imagine, um, you know, in the days before computers and all that stuff. I mean, now you can find that name and find that particular office and get that contact information. So even if you're not a computer user, it's available to you via the telephone. Well, Clark, we really appreciate you being on Soundprints today, and congratulations on on getting uh, the the Data Act introduced. We are so glad to have a bill number now, and, and now it's up to all of us to get out there and help push this along and make it happen. That's right, Carla, and thank you so much to you for having me on Soundprints, as well as to everyone within ACB. It, it was all of your advocacy work that helped lead to the reintroduction of the Disability Access to Transportation Act, or Data, Data Act, H.R. 1697. Like Carla said, if, if you don't know your member of Congress, it, this would be a great reason to find out who they are, to reach out to their office, and recommend that they co-sponsor and support H.R. 1697. Right. Thank you so much, Clark. And we will look forward to hearing more positive things about this and other legislation. Thank you, and keep advocating, everyone. Page 3. 
around the Internet. President Biden signs the American Rescue Plan Act. This was provided by Clark Rackville, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs at the American Council of the Blind. This week, Congress passed and President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, H.R. 1319. This bill aims to relieve several key issues brought on by the COVID-19 health and economic crisis. A total of $1.9 trillion is allocated in this bill. Most individuals will receive direct economic impact payments up to $1,400 per individual and $1,400 per dependent. Individuals making up to $75,000 and couples filing jointly making up to $150,000 will receive the full amount per person. Payments will decrease gradually as incomes increase and will phase out completely after a certain threshold. Households will also receive an additional $1,400 per dependent claimed. Unemployment benefits will continue through September. The bill maintains federal unemployment insurance payments at $300 per week on top of state unemployment payments. The first $10,200 in benefits will not be taxed for households making under $150,000. The bill also increases the amount paid under the child tax credit temporarily to $3,000 for children between the ages of 6 and 17 and $3,600 for children under 6. Eligible families will receive up to $300 per child per month through the end of the year. Payment amounts gradually decrease for families making over $150,000 and individuals making over $75,000 a year. The bill also provides additional funding to safety net programs like the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Programs covered under the Older Americans Act will receive an additional $1.43 billion to address the impact of the pandemic on the health and wellness of older Americans, including those felt by social isolation and economic crises. Additional funding is also provided for rental assistance and emergency vouchers for individuals who experience homelessness or are victims of domestic violence and abuse. The CDC also receives $7.5 billion for vaccine, treatment, and personal protective equipment to respond to the pandemic. The CDC will receive funding to support vaccination efforts, conduct contact tracing, and purchase personal protective equipment. The bill also requires Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program to cover COVID-19 vaccines and treatment, and the bill provides health insurance premium assistance temporarily for certain plans and insurers. Over $30 billion has been allocated for small business support, including $7.25 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. The transportation sector also receives funding to support transit costs, airlines, 
aerospace manufacturing, and airports. $1.5 billion is allocated for Amtrak, including restoring routes and supporting employees. An additional $128 billion in grants are provided to state education agencies and local educational agencies to support students and teachers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Elementary and secondary schools receive money to support distance learning and academic success programs, including those targeted towards students with disabilities and other social disadvantages. Higher education institutions receive $39 billion to support student financial aid and other costs. Child care agencies, especially those in high-need areas, receive additional funding in this provision through block grants. Any student loan forgiveness passed within the next five years would be tax-free and the forgiven debt would not be treated as taxable income. A new promo from IRA Announced on March 11 A new promo introducing the COVID-19 vaccine promo. As COVID-19 vaccination efforts expand, it has become clear that many websites and processes to register, set up appointments, and navigate spaces for the vaccine are not fully accessible to those in the blind and low vision community. While it is the responsibility of government and healthcare entities to comply with the law and ensure that their platforms and processes are accessible, and while the community will continue its advocacy efforts, we cannot wait to get the vaccine. Therefore, we are introducing the COVID promo to assist the Explorer community in obtaining these crucial vaccines. Up to 30 minutes a day, Explorers may use IRA free for vaccine-related tasks. To help our advocacy efforts, we would ask that you use the hashtag COVIDBLV in any and all social media postings and share some of the gaps and barriers you encountered. In order to provide this promotion, IRA will be limiting their job seeker promo to one 30-minute call per day through May. For more information, contact IRA by calling their customer care team. The number in the United States is 800-835-1934. The following letters were submitted to the House and the Senate in support of fiscal year 2022 appropriations for vision and eye health at the CDC. We bring you this information because the Kentucky Council of the Blind and the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind were among the 115 organizations that signed on to these letters this year. The cover letter reads as follows. Good afternoon. Thank you to all of the organizations who have signed on to a letter requesting $5 million to the CDC's Vision and Eye Health Program and $4 million for glaucoma prevention. This year, we had 115 organizations sign on in support. Attached for your records are the PDF copies that went to the House and the Senate Labor HHS Education Appropriation Subcommittees this morning. Please feel free to share these letters on your organization's websites and social media sites, 
or to reach out to your connections on Capitol Hill to notify them that your organization is supportive of this funding. As the federal appropriations process moves ahead, we will keep all of you updated on the progress of these funding requests. Thanks. Sarah D. Brown, MPA, Director of Government Affairs, Prevent Blindness, 312-363-6031. And there's a letter to the House and to the Senate. We will read you the House letter. March 10, 2021. The Honorable Rosa DeLauro, D-E, capital L-A-U-R-O, and the Honorable Tom Cole, Chair and Ranking Member of the United States House of Representatives Appropriations Subcommittee on Labor, Health and Human Services, Education, Health and Human Services, and Education, Washington, D.C., 20515, and Related Agencies, As you develop the House's Labor, Health and Human Services, Education, and Related Agencies Appropriations Legislation for Fiscal Year 2022, we, the 116 undersigned organizations that represent patients and consumers, public health professionals, providers, and community service providers across the vision and eye health spectrum, urge you to appropriate $5 million to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC's Vision and Eye Health Program, and $4 million for glaucoma. This funding would allow the CDC to conduct critically needed national surveillance of devastating eye disease and conditions, determine where gaps in access to care exist, and partner with states and communities to improve vision and eye health at the state, local, or systems level. The COVID-19 pandemic has revealed where the circumstances that lead to vision loss and eye disease, such as the presence of chronic disease, disparities across such populations as those belonging to diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic circumstances and age intersect with the novel coronavirus and its most serious consequences. Vision impairments and eye disease often contribute to or are complicated by other serious and costly chronic health conditions, including diabetes, stroke, depression, social isolation, cognitive decline, and injuries related to falls. Access to quality preventative eye care that can help detect sight-threatening eye disease for underserved communities and high-risk populations was fractured before the pandemic. Vision problems will likely worsen as children, working-age adults, and the elderly have been unable or felt unsafe to access preventative care during the pandemic. Vision impairments will cost the United States $177 billion in 2021. Absent investments in vision and eye health as a public health priority, 
These costs will increase to $717 billion by 2050. The CDC addresses our national vision impairment and eye disease burden by conducting public health surveillance, research, and evidence-based public health interventions designed to complement state and community health efforts. Data from the most reliable surveillance and epidemiological tool available, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, NHANES, is critical to the CDC. The data generated from this survey allows the CDC to track state-level data on vision loss and eye disease, evaluate variances across subgroups and demographics, and implement findings into evidence-based strategic public health interventions to deploy at the state and community level. Allocating $5 million for vision and eye health will enable the CDC to utilize NHANES once again so that vision health stakeholders have the information they need to protect the sight of millions of Americans. Due to consistent underfunding of our national public health system, infrastructure, and capacity, the CDC has not been able to collect reliable prevalence data of vision impairment and eye disease since 2005 to 2008. Consequently, our best available data on our national vision loss and eye disease burden is nearly 15 years old with interventions based on data that dates back as far as 1999. We cannot respond to the needs of patients who are living with blinding eye disease, low vision, or vision loss using data that predates such trends as our rapidly aging population, skyrocketing rate of chronic disease, new stresses to our eye health, such as technology, and rising costs of health care. We urge you to make this critical and timely investment in our vision and eye health. Additionally, $4 million allocated to the CDC's glaucoma program in FY 2022 will allow efforts on glaucoma detection, referral, and sustained treatment to continue through cooperative and cost-effective public-private partnerships and innovative outreach and service delivery projects that have successfully reached high-risk and underserved populations. Glaucoma is a leading cause of blindness for people aged 60 years and older. Today, our nation spends more than $6 billion annually on the disease with costs projected to rise to $12 billion per year by 2032, at which time nearly 4.3 million people will face the disease. In the early stages, glaucoma has no symptoms or noticeable vision loss. However, by the time symptoms or vision loss appears, permanent damage to the eye may have already occurred and vision loss cannot be restored. Public education, early detection, and treatment are cost-effective and fundamental approaches to slowing the progression of glaucoma and preserving remaining vision. Our nation needs coordinated interventions that support key stakeholders and stake-based public health systems to expand early detection, prevention, patient support, and research 
to lessen the burden of vision disorders on working adults and America's public health infrastructure. We urge the House to reinvest in the CDC's vision and eye health program and restore its work in surveillance and maintain the CDC's work in glaucoma so that Americans can look forward to a lifetime of healthy vision and eyesight. If you have any questions, please contact Sarah Brown at sbrown at preventblindness.org. Sincerely, and the following organizations are included. ACB Government Employees, ACB of Minnesota, ACB Radio Amateurs, Alliance for Aging Research, American Academy of Ophthalmology, American Academy of Pediatrics, American Association of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus, American Council of the Blind, American Council of the Blind of Connecticut, American Council of the Blind Diabetics in Action, American Council of the Blind of Indiana, American Council of the Blind of Maryland, the American Council of the Blind of New York Incorporated, American Council of the Blind Next Generation, American Council of the Blind of Ohio, American Council of the Blind of Texas, American Glaucoma Society, American Macular Degeneration Foundation, American Optometric Association, American Society of Retina Specialists, Arkansas Council of the Blind, Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, SC, Association of Diabetic Care and Education Specialists, Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology, ARVO, Association of Schools and Colleges of Optometry, ASCO, Association of University Professors of Ophthalmology, Austin Lighthouse, Bay State Council of the Blind, Beyond Vision, Blinded Veterans Association, Bluegrass Council of the Blind, CABVI, California Agencies for the Blind and Visually Impaired, California Council of the Blind, CCABVI, Chester County Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, CCVIB, Colorado Council of the Visually Impaired and Blind, Center of Vision Enhancement, the Central Association of the Blind and Visually Impaired, Children's Vision, Massachusetts Community Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Department of Ophthalmology, UNC Chapel Hill, Envision Inc., Essilor Vision Foundation, Eyesight Foundation of Alabama, Florida Agency Serving the Blind, Florida Council of the Blind, Georgia Council of the Blind, Georgia Eye Bank, the Golden Triangle Council of the Blind, Greater Louisville Council of the Blind, Guide Dogs for the Blind Foundation, Fighting Blindness, Hadley, Hawaii Association of the Blind, IE, Lighthouse for the Blind, Illinois Assistive Technology Program, Illinois College of Optometry, Illinois Council of the Blind, Illinois Society for the Prevention of Blindness, Iowa Council of the United Blind, Kansas Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Kansas School Nurses Association, Kansas Society of Eye Physicians and Surgeons, Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision, Kentucky Council of the Blind, Lighthouse for the Blind and Low Vision, Lighthouse Central Florida, 
Lighthouse, Louisiana, Lupus and Allied Diseases Association, Inc., Michigan Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired, Minnesota Christian Fellowship of the Blind, Missouri Council of the Blind, Mountain State Council of the Blind, Naples Lions Club, National Alliance of Eye and Vision Research, National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, National Association of School Nurses, National Caucus and Center on Black Aging, Inc., National Optometric Association, New Jersey Council of the Blind, New York Vision Rehabilitation Association, North Carolina Council of the Blind, Inc., North Central Sight Services, North Dakota Association of the Blind, Oklahoma Council of the Blind, One Sight Opticians Association of America, Perkins School for the Blind, Pennsylvania Council of the Blind, Prevent Blindness, Prevent Blindness, Georgia, Prevent Blindness, Iowa, Prevent Blindness, North Carolina, Prevent Blindness, Ohio Affiliate, Prevent Blindness, Texas, Prevent Blindness, Wisconsin, Prevention of Blindness, Society of Metropolitan Washington, San Antonio Lighthouse for the Blind, San Diego Center for the Blind, Society for the Blind, Sacramento, California, South Dakota Association of the Blind, Spectrios Institute for Low Vision, Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, University of Illinois College of Medicine at Peoria, Division of Pediatric Ophthalmology, Valley Center for the Blind, Vision Health Advocacy Coalition, Vision Corps, Vision Forward Association, Vision Impact Institute, Vision Serve Alliance, Volunteer Optometric Service for Humanity, Wisconsin Chapter, VOSH California, VOSH International, VOSH Iowa, the Washington Council of the Blind, and Wayfinder Family Services. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.